0: You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. What's been happening?
1: Sure. Yeah, let's start there. So... This week, today is March 16th, and we are in the midst, although you wouldn't know it by the weather, this is legislative spring break, it's been kind of more like winter break, but uh, the legislature has 18 session weeks this session, which is normal. Uh, The Constitution kind of spells out the schedule, and they stick a week-long break in March, and so we've had 10 session weeks, and when they come back next Monday, there will be eight more session weeks, and then they will be done uh, at the end of that 18th week. And so this kind of isn't mathematically the halfway point, but it feels like the halfway point because you kind of take stock at this point. You know, you, you uh, take a little time off to recuperate, And you also pay kind of attention to bills that have crossed chambers. That is, a bill that started in one chamber has made itself through the process in that chamber and has been sent over to the other chamber. Because typically, by the spring break, priority bills in a topic area will have made that through. They'll do more. They'll continue to work on their own bills for a number of weeks after they come back from spring break. But at some point, each chamber will also start to give some attention to the bills that have sent over from the other chamber. And so in my update, I noted that each chamber has sent the other three education bills so far. And on the House side, the top priority seems to be, again, the open enrollment bill of Representative Brad Pollitt. This year, it's House Bill 253. And that bill was perfected, that is debated and amended, and then passed with a narrow majority. It got 82 votes in favor. The minimum to pass the House is 80. I may have said that wrong. There's got 85 votes. The minimum to pass is 82 votes. And it has always, the last three years, passed the House, but with just barely enough votes uh, to reach the constitutional minimum. And that bill will presumably get some attention in the Senate, but it's not clear how quickly that'll happen. The Senate the top priority education bill that they sent over was Senate bill four, which is Andrew Koenig's bill. It started as a bill pertaining to like the curriculum ban topics and uh, critical race theory and also parental information access. And it accumulated a couple other provisions. There's something about um, a program for civics training of educators. There's a number of provisions, several provisions that relate to school finance. It actually adds uh, basically formula funding for kids living in poverty. It increases that, and it also creates formula funding calculation for students who are homeless in our school districts. So that bill has already passed the Senate in in an in a expanded form. The uh, other bills that have been passed by the two chambers, they're kind of lesser in their current substance. But you know, the way this process can work is you, you know, after 10 weeks in, nobody can honestly say they have a good idea of which, if any, of these bills or some other bills kind of yet to be identified. Will actually be the ones that at the end of session get loaded up, uh, you know, pass both chambers in some form, go to conference, and may ultimately, you know, land on the governor's desk. And so, you know, you can't really ignore these other bills that have passed. One of them is um, House Bill seventy from Chris Dinkins, is uh, pertaining to school protection officers, and House Bill eight twenty seven. Phil Christoffinelli pertains to some tweaks to stuff that the legislature did last year on full-time virtual schools. Uh, Meanwhile, the Senate passed the Bible bill, Carla May, Senate Bill 34, which was also something the Senate passed last session, but it didn't make it all the way through the process. And they've also passed Senate Bill 75, Rusty Black, and that bill pertains to public school retirement. And has a button. It's got like the two point five five factor for thirty two plus years of service. It's got the so called bus driver provision. It's got several pieces to try to encourage our experienced educators to stay in the classroom longer, allowing them to work more, earn a little bit more, in order to help address in a small way. The challenge we face in retaining our experienced educators and uh, in the difficult times that we have right now. So, those bills, while not as massive as the open enrollment and the parents' bill of rights slash CRT ish bill, they're out there, and the Senate Bill Four, the parents' rights and curriculum ban language. You know, it's really, it's kind of what we might call heavy because it has so much stuff to it and it's expensive. And Senator Laughlin apparently has suggested to the House that it might be a hard thing for it to get back through the Senate a second time. So if the, you know, if the House were to take it up and change it in a substantial way uh, and then send it back to the Senate, it would have to be taken up again, either go to conference or, you know, the Senate try to take it up and pass it. Uh So, you know, they would prefer that the House just, you know, accept the Senate's glorious and um, brilliant language in all areas so that it doesn't have to come back over. But that seems unlikely. They had a hearing on kind of the the analogous curriculum and parent access bills uh, in the House committee within the last week or so. Bill Ellie has one. I think it's House Bill 627. And then uh, Ben Baker has House Bill 482. And both of them are much less in terms of substance and breadth. Uh, Ellie's bill in particular is like three pages of printed law. It has the parent access stuff pulled into one little part. And then the only thing it has on the curriculum side is language that we saw kind of last year. Shamed Dogan, who's been termed out, he drafted some language that said um, it's kind of in a, the anti-discrimination topic alone. And it says that you can't make a student affirm that they believe, you know, like one race is better or worse than the other, etc. So it's much smaller. It doesn't really speak specifically to topics that can be taught. Um, it basically focuses on a kind of a, non, you know, a, a non-indoctrination approach, which really is not a thing. So, you know, it's clearly this has kind of a, always been a political thing, but this language actually kind of reflects that in that it, it, you know, the substance of it is very targeted against something that would be very unlikely to ever see. So, Anyway, that's a maybe a long way to say, you know, where it feels like we're about halfway through the session. We've had a couple bills, including priority bills, pop over. But, you know, we're still eight weeks out and they could still pass other bills. And those lesser bills um, and some others that haven't quite made it across could easily be ones that become vehicles. So that's kind of what's gone across chambers. What we the one thing that we see still kind of parked potentially for some debate right when the legislature comes back might be the somewhat controversial topic of changes to assessment and accreditation. Uh, Paula Brown had her committee hearing on House Bill 49. That hasn't come out of the House committee yet. But Senator Jill Carter has Senate Bill 85, which addresses similar topics, and it's actually on the Senate calendar for perfection. So uh, somewhat soon after they go to that formal calendar, they will get to Senate Bill 85, and that bill really is pointing to the department and saying on the subject of testing and assessment, we're going to use the federal required testing strictly for the federally required purposes. We're going to give a lot more uh, credence if you will and and include in the report card that a school district would do um, the kind of information that it's gathering currently from the assessment that it already uses that is much more tied to what teachers are teaching and kids are learning and then on the accreditation side both of those bills call upon the department and the state board to recognize the national and regional accrediting agencies that have been ex- existing for a number of decades and that are used by some other states to be an option for uh, seeking accreditation, um, essentially making MSIP an option that a district could choose or they could choose to work with an accrediting agency. So we, do, we also, I think, would see, we're likely to see some action on that once the Senate and the House are back in session after spring break.
0: What is the likelihood of bills passing or really moving far if they haven't moved already before spring break?
1: So it's it, it starts to decline, obviously, as you get farther into the session. Um, but the thing that you should never rule out is anything, if it has been filed as a bill, if it has gotten a hearing in committee, had a fairly favorable hearing from the committee's perspective, such that it got voted out of committee, even if it isn't a priority enough to get moved on by the committee chair. And that's that's a place where a lot of bills essentially die. You know, they might die because while they were voted on, committee chair could only turn in a certain number of bills. And the speaker in particular has restricted committee chairs to, in general, only two bills prior to where we are now in session. So there haven't been a ton of bills coming to the House floor from each committee. So a lot of bills could die. But when the House, for example, is debating a Senate bill, like one of these three that I mentioned, if it ever gets through the committee They might put some language, you know, if it's already language the House committee has considered, talked about on a House bill, it could easily show up in a Senate bill when they do a House committee substitute, or when it gets out onto the House floor, there might be that the person who filed the bill might offer the amendment and say, hey, this is an amendment I filed as a bill. It got heard in the Elementary and Secondary Committee. It got voted out. If you can say it got voted out unanimously, so much the better. Uh, you know, got voted out of a committee, and we should just put this on the bill and see what the Senate thinks. So just because a bill isn't looking like it's going to be the thing that crosses the finish line, if it has made a certain amount of progress through the committee, it becomes something much more likely to succeed as a floor amendment or as a committee amendment if they're loading up a Senate bill with House provisions to make a House committee substitute, or the Senate committee is loading up a House bill with Senate provisions to make a Senate committee substitute.
0: So as a bill in itself, it may not show up, but it could show up in other places.
1: For that, sure. It, I mean? it, it's you know, it's likely to show up, you know, who, whichever chamber that the sponsor is, he or she is likely to try to either get it incorporated into a committee sub or put it, offer it on a floor um, as a floor amendment when that, when a bill comes up. Um, And, you know, sometimes the, the, you know, the, the uh, connection of the bill and the amendment might not be as obvious as you think. So, you know, you might be able to do, you know, they might have a bill that comes up about, oh, fees, and sunshine law, and the next thing you know, you've got a Parents' Bill of Rights amendment stuck on the that bill, and you're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, wow, okay, so now we have a semi-education amendment on a bill that, you know, never went to an education committee sponsored by somebody who wasn't trying to move anything in the area of education.
0: I think about drinking water on the Senate Bill 681. Right, right. Yeah got a lot of tea leaves that you have to read. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it's it's more pages in the journal because you just have to watch out for um, mm-hmm. all of these amendments. One nice thing is, you know, we do have we do have technologies that can track for like particular sections of law getting amended so that like if I say, you know, there's this amendment that would pertain to this section mm-hmm. and and, and the sponsor throws that on to some bill, even if I'm not in the chamber when it happens, uh, I'll probably get a little message from the tracking situation that says, hey, that amendment just got put onto the X, X bill. Um, you should look for that.
0: So is there anything else in terms of legislation that you see coming down for the next eight weeks that you are keeping an eye out for? Uh, yes, the testing. Uh, yes, the accountability, the accreditation bills that are happening, that are brewing a little bit. You're going to be looking at for those. Anything else you're looking at?
1: There are, like, you know, we have state and we have local government finances. You know, we have institutions that we fund through tax revenues of many kinds. And pretty much every single type of tax at the state and the local level, there is legislation trying to reduce that tax.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it's not clear yet which, if any of those, are actually likely to pass.
0: You explain to me what hold harmless means, because I have heard this term so much in the last mm. three weeks, and I'm like, what is that?
1: What is that? So, it's in theory, it should mean a stop-loss provision. In other words it's something where you've you've changed how the formula for example works and the conditions of a district through its parameters kids property etc say it should get less state money and then the state says well we we need to not have all these people voting no because their community gets less money so what we'll say is if you were going to get more money here it comes and if you were going to get less well, we'll just keep you here at this same level. Um, Sometimes that'll be done, and then it'll kind of like go away over time. In Missouri, we've typically made those things permanent. Um, So the net effect is this, when the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education runs their formula calculation for every LEA, which includes uh, most or essentially now all of the charter schools and all school districts, they're going to run a number under the formula, which is, you know, it's going to look at local resources, it's going to look at the number of kids and their identified needs and create a weighted ADA if the dollar figure or per pupil amount, depending upon how big you are, if it generates less than the appropriate comparison amount that they got from old resources back at the last time that provision got amended, then we pay them that higher amount. So they're giving, in mm-hmm. a sense, more than the f- current standard of equity under the formula and their kids' identified needs and other parameters call for. It's kind of like a bonus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it's basically a politically necessary bonus uh, if you don't have... Uh, enough to raise all ships through the operation of the formula itself, you just kind of say, okay, well, we just won't cut you guys below where you used to be. So that's kind of what hold harmless should mean. The intriguing feature of the 2005 law, Senate Bill 287, was that people now called hold harmless a provision that not only didn't reduce, but actually increased. So they took all of the State money, not just the formula, but the other state payments like transportation. And then they multiplied that by a cost of ed factor. So a lot of districts that were supposed to um, kind of be held level actually saw, you know, like an 8 or 9% increase if they were in the metro areas. Mm. So that wasn't, strictly speaking, a hold harmless district. And I actually tried for a while to refer to them as non-formula districts since they were actually getting more than what hold harmless implied that term never really caught on. People are like, oh, you mean hold harmless, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're stuck with it, even though it's kind of hold harmless plus in some cases.
0: So thank you for being the knower of all things. <laughs> of Missouri legislation and what has happened. I appreciate that. Um, I am going to ask my typical question. And what is your one word for session at this moment in time?
1: Mm, One word? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Remember, I'm compiling them all at the end and you have to do something with them.
1: Oh, at this point, I think doubt is probably Mm. a good word because there's just a lot of when, we, when they left for spring break, mm-hmm. the Senate really w- did not do what we expected. We expected them to argue about provisions related to trans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there are two p- topics, and we expected them to kind of do them both the same week, and they did, they, they did none of them. So the reason I say doubt is because there was kind of a reemergence of the ideological rift between what used to be in prior sessions. We called it the conservative caucus, and they said, "Oh no, we've disbanded." They did, you know, wrote out a letter last summer to the rest of the Senate saying, "We've disbanded." But on this topic, you know, there was efforts in amongst various kind of factions, uh, you know. The Senate Democrats were opposed, but they were trying to, you know, negotiate to limit, you know, things that they were maybe not not keen on, but recognizing, you know, the we're outvoted, you know, we have we can only negotiate as much as we can. So then there was negotiations between different parts of the rest of the Senate, and it just kinda didn't gel to produce a legislative outcome. And so now we're left with a lot of questions about where does that leave the rest of this session Hmm. Uh, in terms of, you know, other, do we expect them to immediately return to that topic when they come back in session or maybe sometime next week? Hmm. Um, Do they reach an outcome? And if they reach an outcome, does it involve something that is so draconian in its process that it creates a you know essentially a problem that make disables the senate for the rest of the session
0: hmm.
1: so there's a lot of i would say doubt on that topic um and you know in terms of the outcomes on those two priority bills open enrollment and the senate bill for parents bill of rights uh critical race theory etc you know is there going to be motion on the senate bill with the House? Create, create its own thing and then stick it on to maybe some other Senate bill that trots over at some point. Um, there's a lot at this point, you know, with eight weeks to go, it's very unclear um, how that things move forward in the next few weeks. Other than that the House will work on the budget. And and we may know more at that point. I mean, because we'll probably, you know, we're going to see how things roll out after, as they come back from break. You know, or do the, do they do the gears come back in motion or do things get sideways. Let let, let me just add add one more thing. And that is, I think our, you know, we are having great participation in our capital action days. We've had a lot of folks write postcards to legislators talking about some general topics. Like here's how I keep parents informed. Mm -hmm. You know, here's how my classroom would be affected if we had resources taken away by, you know, charter school expansion or vouchers. Mm -hmm. So I don't, want our members to think that there's any reason to hesitate in sharing and getting to know your legislator. What legislators really need to hear, maybe more than anything, is really an understanding of all the good work and the challenges that our educators face, how they're working you know, on a daily basis with their students, with parents, that there's so much good going on um, in our public schools, And that, you know, yeah, we see these high profile things going on, brought forward by a few people with whatever motivations they have, but they need to see the real picture back home of what does that public education really look and feel like and what's it, what is it accomplishing in their district?
0: Yes, I think that's so important, especially with everyone focused on APRs that in the new iteration of MSIP, we are so much more than that number.
1: Yeah, you let them know that you know, on a day by day basis, you know, the map is like, especially for elementary kids and teachers, the map is essentially useless.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know yeah. what ma- what matters is the teaching and the learning, mm-hmm. where the kid is at. The kid kid is where the kid is at, and the teaching and learning relates to where they're at and where and, they're going, and where they're going and how they're progressing. And the map doesn't you know, it's never, it was never and can never really fulfill that kind of a function. But okay. if you want to actually know, okay, what is the, you know, how's my kid progressing? It's the work and the assessments that are being, you know, the, and the the learning and what the kids are doing and what the teacher is doing, how they're teaching and how the kid is learning. And, you know, there's a conversation every day going on between the teacher, the student, the parents are you know, typically very involved in that. That's that work is going on and that's the work that really drives, you know, educational success. Not, you know, the map doesn't really do that and it never will. And it never could.
0: And I would, I would never think that one assessment could. Right. Ever. Well, I have no doubt in (laughs) there. So, um, thank you. Always appreciate our conversations. I, look forward to the next one we will the next one will be like 4 weeks left right
1: if we do it in 4 weeks there'll be 4 weeks, session weeks left
0: so i did the math right i'll be ready for that budget conversation especially now that i know what hold harmless means